feel kind of like God. <laughs> and then this man with the devil on his hand came and took the hat. Free Britney. Free Britney. A lovely bunch of coconuts, dilly dilly there they are, standing in a row. Boom, boom, boom. Big ones, small ones, some as big as you. Oh, oh, hi. D I didn't hear you come in. Well, that's awkward. Uh, hello, and welcome back to Dab to Death. I am your host, Nick Nobody Savage. And if you'll forgive my random coconut song, I hope you all have been well since last we spoke. Uh, I know that this episode is a little bit late, and I do apologize for that. Uh, it just took a little bit longer to put the research together than I had anticipated, and rather than try to rush the episode and put out something that wasn't finished, I decided to wait and just post another Burn in Urban. And I hope you enjoyed Kangaroo Jacked, the story of the kangaroo thief coming to us straight from Australia. And yes, that song from the movie has been stuck in my head ever since that episode. So, there's that. If you've been following the schedule, probably closer than I have at this point, then you know that this week's episode is about Eileen Hornos. Before I get into the episode, I'm going to talk about what I'm dabbing on this week. So this week I've got some Donnie Burger number no. five live resin diamond sauce, cultivated by Landhammer Farms, and of course brought to you by Paper Planes. Next up, I have Fire OG crossed with Super Lemon Haze, cultivated by Sierra Soul Farms. Oh, it's a live resin batter, by the way. So, I've got that, and then I've got the Alien OG crossed with Stupid Fruits, also live resin batter, and that's also cultivated by Sierra Soul Farms, and of course, both of those brought to you by Paper Planes. And then I've got some super special stuff. I don't know who grew it. All I know is that it's delicious. I know I say that a lot, but it is. Purple runts. It's like a, a diamond sauce. Very terpy. Very, very terpy. And then I'm super happy about this, but I got some of the Snow Lotus Shatter back. Anyway, I think I'm going to start with a dab. And I think I am going to start with... You know what? I'm going to start with the Donnie Burger uh, number five, Live Resin Diamond Sauce. Oh, one thing uh, while I am preparing this dab, I, if any of you, I'm assuming most of you at this point, are familiar with Serial, uh, you know, one of the original like true crime podcasts that, you know, told the story of Adnan Syed, then... If you follow the story at all, uh, I just found out recently that they have agreed to test new DNA evidence, or at least test evidence that they didn't test before, I guess. Um, so they're going to test some new DNA, 
and hopefully that can you know progress the case a little bit further. We could find out some new information. Uh, my fiance and I were actually discussing this the other night, you know, and we were talking about like either way, this really sucks, you know, because either he didn't do it and he's spent this entire time fighting to prove that he's innocent and, you know, like in prison or in jail and like his entire life is ruined at this point, you know, and his family's had to go through all this shit. And it's like, so that sucks. Or he really did do it and he's been bullshitting and manipulating people this entire fucking time and we've all just beating it out of the palm of his hand. So either way, this is a really shitty situation if you think about it. Like, the whole situation's fucked. And it's gonna suck either way, Like, but it's also gonna be great to have closure if we ever finally get closure. If he ever, or if his family ever gets closure. I can't remember the girl's name. But if her family ever gets closure, that'd be great, too. You know, everybody just wants some fucking answers at this point. All right, I'm going to do this dab before I uh, fling it somewhere again. Definitely some Donnie. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into this week's episode, Wicked Warnos, a man-made monster. If you have seen the 2003 major motion picture Monster, starring Charlize Theron, or any of the numerous other films or TV documentaries on the topic, there was even an opera at one point then you are familiar with the story of Eileen Warnos, or at least with whichever bastardized version of the story you ended up watching. These adaptations all tell different sides of the story, ranging from the love story between Eileen Warnos and Selby Wall in Monster to the crazed first-person account straight from, quote, Eileen's mouth, in the 2021 Netflix movie, Eileen Warnos, American Boogie Woman, starring Peyton List as Eileen. So, just to clarify, Selby Wall was actually just a character who was loosely based on Eileen's real-life girlfriend, Tyria Moore, and who's played by Christina Ricci, actually. So, fun fact. The true story, however, is much sadder and much darker like real life often is. Eileen Carol Warnos, originally born Eileen Pittman, was born on February 29, 1956, so she actually shares a birthday with fellow serial killer Richard Ramirez, and she was born in Rochester, Michigan. Her mother, Diane Warnos, was only 14 years old when she married 18-year-old Leo Pittman. A year later, the two had a son named Keith, and then another year after came little Eileen, 
She would never meet her father, however, as Diane filed for divorce two months before Eileen was born, and Leo was incarcerated by that time. Her father was a diagnosed schizophrenic, and he was later convicted of raping a seven-year-old girl. Almost setting the theme for the rest of this story, honestly. And honestly, I should stop and do a little bit of a disclaimer here. I know this is already an explicit podcast, and I talk a lot about a lot of explicit subjects, but this episode deals with a lot of sexual assault and stuff like that, so just a fair heads up, um, just letting everybody know now, it's going to come up quite a bit, so buckle up. Uh, so in January of 1969, Leo Pittman hung himself in his prison cell, and I say good riddance to bad garbage, honestly. Uh, I actually read something somewhere that was saying there was a theory that he had actually been strangled in prison and then made to look like a suicide because, you know, they actually don't take too kindly to that in prison, you know, they don't like pedophiles. Nobody likes a pedophile. Go figure. Now, in 1960, when Eileen was just four years old, her mother abandoned her and her brother Keith to the care of their alcoholic grandparents, Britta and Lori Jacob Warnos, who would go on to adopt them. And that is definitely using the word care lightly. Unfortunately for them, and especially for Eileen, This was not the saving grace that they so desperately needed. According to Eileen, her grandfather would beat and sexually assault her throughout her childhood, and by the age of 11, she had begun to exchange sexual favors for food, cigarettes, and drugs at school. Like, 11 years old and already, like, resorting to sex work for, you know, the things that she wanted or needed... Because her grandparents definitely weren't going to provide a lot for her. In 1970, Eileen got pregnant at the age of 14 after being raped by one of her grandfather's friends. So instead of helping this poor girl, or I don't know, you know, maybe prosecuting the rapist. No, instead she was locked away in a home for unwed mothers until she gave birth to her son on March 23rd, 1971 and the child was put up for adoption. A few months after returning to her grandparents' house, Eileen dropped out of school. I'm honestly surprised she was able to make it that long with everything she was going through, like seriously. And it's kind of fucked up that the school didn't realize anything was going on, because like, seriously? And all of, there's 11-year-olds like, prostituting themselves out for food, cigarettes, and drugs on your campus. And y'all are just like, It's a beautiful day outside today. Did you see that cloud? It looked like a bunny rabbit. Anyway. It was also around this time that her grandmother died, and it wasn't long before her grandfather kicked her out of the house. He even went so far as threatening to kill her. Like, this dude just hated Eileen for some reason. 
and Eileen was only 15 years old at this time. After this, she was forced to survive on her own and ended up living in the woods and making money the only way she knew how, by resorting to prostitution. When Eileen was 18, she was arrested in Jefferson County, Colorado for disorderly conduct, driving under the influence, and firing a 22 caliber pistol from a moving vehicle. She failed to appear in court, which of course only added to her charges. A couple of years later, in 1976, she hitchhiked her way to Florida and was quickly married to a 69-year-old man named Louis Fell. And this is actually where the new uh, Netflix movie storyline starts. So basically, Eileen is in a, you know, older and she's in prison. I think it's actually like right before she's supposed to be executed. And so she's telling, quote, her side of the story. And, like, no matter how many times this dude conflicts her story with, like, straight-up evidence along the way, she's just like, do you want to hear my goddamn side of the story or not? And he's just like, fine, fine, whatever. And lets her tell the story. And it's 99% bullshit, you know? Like, there's things she claims that, you know, they could disprove. And, and I'm pretty sure this is, like, mostly a just Hollywood-embellished pile of crap. Like, honestly, not. If, if you're looking for a really informative Eileen Warnos movie, this is not the one. This isn't even close to the one. This is them trying to make Eileen Warnos sexy. And if you know anything about Eileen Warnos, she was not sexy. So, back to the story. The marriage was a brief and troubled one, as Eileen was always out drinking at local bars, enjoying her newfound wealth, I'm assuming and would sometimes get into confrontations. I'm also assuming that she was us- this was usually with some drunken asshat who was trying to hit on her. One night, she is arrested for assault, despite her claims that the man had tried to sexually assault her and that she was merely defending herself. This actually also becomes co- quite the theme in this story, and it's kind of bullshit. Just like, it just sucks because like not once did any of these people think that maybe she actually was being sexually assaulted. It's just always like she fought back and so she's the aggressor. And that's bullshit. I call bullshit on that. Anyway, way off topic. After being bailed out of jail, tensions were high between Lewis and Eileen. At one point, Eileen even strikes Lewis with his own cane, and shortly after, he files a restraining order. In the movie, this is a way different scenario. In the movie, they like make it super dramatized, like she's out to murder the guy all of a sudden, and his, his daughter, and all this shit, and it's, it, it's cray-cray. But... Moving on. None of that actually happened. After the rapid deterioration of their marriage, Eileen returned home to Michigan. She continued to get into trouble with the law, including being charged with assault and disturbing the peace, when she threw a cue ball at a bartender's head. Just days after this arrest, Eileen's brother Keith died after a battle with esophageal cancer. This is another difference in the movie, by the way, because in the movie she smothers him with a pillow and then shoots him in the face, 
which I don't understand. If you're going to smother them with a pillow, which the whole point of smothering with somebody with a pillow is that it's quiet and subtle, and especially if you're in a hotel room, probably the way you want to do it, then why shoot them in the face? Why? 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 Like I said, the, 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 the Netflix movie, just it, so many questions. It's just why? Poor K. I don't know how to say why in any other languages, but if I did, why? Anyway. So this left her with $10,000 from an insurance payout, which she blew through within a couple of months. Uh, She bought like a car and probably a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol. Yeah, I'm assuming mostly that. By this point, her marriage to Louis Fell had been annulled. And also, sometime between kicking them out of the house and Keith dying of cancer, their grandfather committed suicide, but honestly, he sounded like a piece of shit, so no tears wasted on that guy. In 1978, when she was 22 years old, Eileen attempted committing suicide for the sixth time since the age of 14 this time by shooting herself in the stomach. So, like, clearly she was in a lot of pain after a life of being shit on, and she just really wanted a way out. Which, that sucks, and, like, that's not the way out. Well, that was a bit heavy, and on that note, I think I need a dab. Alrighty, what do we got, what do we got, what do we got? I think I'm gonna hit the Sierra Soul Farm stuff this time. I'm really excited for this Alien OG Stupid Fruit Cross, so I'm going to try that one. Okay, so it's a really nice, not a super like strong, it's more of a subtle smell to it, but the color and the texture is really nice to look at. It's kind of a peach color, I would say, like a very lighter, like lighter side of peach, maybe. It was like, well, obviously like a blonde, like a blonde peach. If a peach were blonde, yeah, yeah, if a peach were blonde, that's what it would look like. It's a slightly grainy batter, but it is phenomenally, it's it's really soft. And, and I'm just going to smoke it now because I can't fucking talk tonight, so yeah. Okay, that is, that is really good. Oh. <coughs> 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 
trying to taste or place this flavor. I know this this taste. I just can't identify it. All right. So, Eileen would drift around Florida and into and out of prison until 1986, when at 30 years old she met Tyria Moore, a 24-year-old hotel maid. The two met at a gay bar in Daytona Beach called Zodiac and would go on to form a relationship. Tyria moved in with Eileen, who supported them with the money she earned as a sex worker, and would often be a witness on Eileen's behalf when she would get into trouble, usually when she would inevitably assault one of the previously mentioned drunken asshats. They managed to make ends meet for the next three years until 1989, when the murders began, and Eileen Warnos would go on to become, as we all know her now, a quote, monster. Eileen's first documented murder was that of Richard Charles Mallory on November 30th, 1989. Richard Mallory was a 51-year-old electronics shop owner from Clearwater who had been previously convicted for attempted rape and served a 10-year sentence for it in Maryland. A fact which was like conveniently left out of Eileen's trial, and when I say conveniently, I mean deliberately by the judge, like he refused. And I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. His vehicle was found abandoned by a Volusia County Sheriff's de- deputy on December 1st, and 12 days later, his body was found in a wooded area several miles away. Richard had been shot several times, but it was the two rounds that found their way to his left lung that ultimately did him in. Eileen would later go on to say that Mallory had driven her out to a secluded area and then beat raped, and sodomized her, so she shot him in self-defense. Don't fucking blame ya. I would too. Next up was 43-year-old David Andrew Spears, a construction worker in Winter Garden. After being declared missing in mid-May of 1990, David Spears' body was found on June 1st, 1990 along Route 19 in Citrus County. He was completely naked, but for a baseball cap, and Eileen had shot him six times in the torso with a twenty-two caliber pistol. Though the exact date of David's murder is unknown, Eileen's next murder took place on May 31st, the day before his body would be found. Her next victim was Charles Edmund Carscadden a 40-year-old and part-time rodeo worker who Eileen shot nine times in the chest and stomach with another twenty-two caliber pistol. You can't say that she didn't know how to group her shots pretty well. Like, bam, center mass every time. She wrapped his body in an electric blanket before dumping it and taking Carscadden's car. Say that five times fast which several witnesses would see her in. His badly decomposed body was found days later on June 6th in Pasco County. Not only had Eileen been spotted by several people driving Charles's car, but she had also pawned a gun belonging to him, so she definitely was not being subtle about her crimes. Then, sometime later in June, 65-year-old Peter Abraham Seams departed his home in Jupiter, Florida, headed for either Arkansas or New Jersey, 
There seems to be some debate as to which it is. Some say Arkansas, some say New Jersey. I say it doesn't really fucking matter because he never made it there. Whatever his destination, Peter would never make it there. See, told you. His car was found on the 4th of July in Orange Springs, about 250 miles away, and witnesses reported seeing Eileen and Tyria leaving the car where it was found. His body was never recovered. The next person who was ill-fated enough to meet Eileen was 50-year-old Troy Eugene Burris, the Sausage King of Ocala. That's right. I'm Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago. <clears throat> Sorry. Troy was reported missing on July 31st, and his body was found in a wooded area off of State Road 19 in Marion County on August 4th. Though his body was already in a pretty advanced state of decomposition, investigators were able to determine that he had been shot twice. Now, Eileen's next victim seems slightly different from the usual pattern to me. Charles Richard Humphreys was a 56-year-old veteran, having retired as a major in the United States Air Force, as well as a former police chief and a former state child abuse investigator. Doesn't really sound like the kind of guy that's going to go around trying to rape women. Then again, you never know, he could be trying to make up for some shit. Overcompensating, as they say. It's not necessarily Charles's heroic choice of career paths that distinguishes him from Eileen's other victims, either. What really makes him stand out, in my opinion, is that when his body was found on September 12th, also in Marion County, he was fully clothed and had been shot six times in the head and torso. This seemed more like a robbery and an execution than self-defense. His car was later found in Suwanee County. Finally, we come to the last of the seven victims, 62-year-old Walter Gino Antonio. Walter was a trucker, security guard, and a reserve police officer. Like some of Eileen's other victims, his body was practically naked when it was found near a remote logging road in Dixie County on November 19th. He had been shot four times in the back and head. So again, can't really claim self-defense if you shot him in the back. And the head. The back of the head. Execution. And authorities recovered his vehicle in Brevard County five days later. Sure, they like to leave him naked. Like, just leave him buck ass naked in the middle of a field. Let the crows find him. But anyway, Eileen Warnos and Tyria Moore had abandoned Peter Seam's car a few months before in July. It is also worth mentioning that by this time, Tyre... Tyria? God damn it. It was also by this time that her girlfriend had grown suspicious about Eileen's activities and had returned home to Pennsylvania. The two had been involved in an accident in the vehicle, and witnesses of the incident were able to provide a description of both of them, and Eileen's prints were found in the vehicle 
as well as on pawn slips for some of Peter's personal belongings. The hunt for Eileen Warnos was on. In the end, it really wasn't that long of a search when you think about it. They started looking for Eileen Interia in July of 1990, and on January 9th, 1991, just five months later, Eileen Warnos was arrested at The Last Resort, a biker bar in Volusia County. Actually being the model of efficiency for a change, the police tracked down Eileen's girlfriend in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the very next day. She agreed to work with the police in exchange for immunity and returned to Florida in an attempt to get a confession out of Eileen. She placed several calls to Warnos, who I'm assuming is in jail, right? So, like, how is she calling Eileen? I've been in jail. You don't get incoming calls. But basically, she was, like, begging Eileen to help her clear her name, saying, you know, like, they're going to prosecute me. They're, you know, they're going to throw me in jail. You got to tell them I didn't do anything. Basically saying you got to confess. So it only took three days to get what they were after. On January 16th, Eileen confessed to the murders, stating that all seven of the men had raped her and that she killed them in self-defense. She would later change her story, several times in fact, and this did her no favors during the trial. Also, she basically sold the rights to the movie, like all of the movie rights to the story, like just days after she got arrested. So, you know, might as well cash in on it, right? Now, it took a year for her case to go to trial, which began on January 13th, 1992. Though she was technically only on trial for the murder of Richard Charles Mallory at this point. Despite her defense's best efforts, the judge refused to allow Mallory's prior rape charge or the prison files, stating that, quote, Mr. Mallory possessed strong sociopathic trends to be admitted as evidence. And this is probably because it would ruin the image that they were trying to paint of Eileen and destroy the prosecution's case against her because they were going for the death penalty and if she was doing, you know, if it was in self-defense, then they couldn't push for the death penalty. So, there's that. Oh, that was actually my very next point. Also, by acknowledging that Eileen may have been acting in self-defense to fight off her rapist, they would not be able to try it as a capital murder case and seek the death penalty. And remember, this is really only for the murder of one man, so they're trying to put her to death for, for one murder. Just one. Just one. You know, I thought Spider-Man said everybody gets one. Apparently he didn't mean murders. That was a lot. I think I need a dab. And then I'll knock out the rest of this. Alrighty. So I think lastly I'm going to do... As excited as I was to have Snow Lotus back, I think I'm going to... I think I'm going to try this Fire OG and Super Lemon Haze cross. Holy shit, you can definitely smell the lemon. That literally like sent a little tingle down my spine. <laughs> Alright, let's do this.
That is very, very. It's got like a citrusy, piney. Okay. Back to it. There are several factors that determine whether a case qualifies for the death penalty in Florida. And one of those factors is if the murder is intentionally carried out during the commission of a kidnapping, burglary, robbery, aggravated rape, or similar crime. Eileen was officially charged with first-degree murder, armed robbery with a firearm or deadly weapon, and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. The trial only lasted two weeks. The prosecution's case relied primarily on the taped confession that Eileen gave to the police. In this confession, she never mentioned that Mallory had raped her, and instead seemed more focused on clearing her girlfriend's name than anything else. And instead seemed more focused on clearing Tyria's name than anything else. And understandably so, because they literally had her call Eileen and say that they were going to prosecute her as well if she didn't confess. Because the fact of the matter was, Eileen already knew she was fucked. And she was used to getting fucked her entire life. But she could still save Tyria. Tyria. If you know how to pronounce that, please let me know. I probably should have remembered, but I didn't because I smoke a lot of weed and names and yeah. But anyway, that name, the T name, her girlfriend. But yeah, so she could still save her girlfriend. Which, really, all she did was pawn some of the stuff with Eileen and ride around in the cars, as far as we know, so she really didn't do anything wrong. In addition to that, the prosecution was also able to present evidence related to the other murders during the trial, thanks to a Florida law referred to as the Williams Rule, which allows outside evidence to be admitted if it helps to show motive or intent. Yet weird that they couldn't allow Mallory's prior rape conviction to be admitted because, you know, that's somehow irrelevant, right? Hmm. The prosecution, and probably even the judge honestly, dismissed the idea that Eileen was acting in self-defense during these murders pretty much as soon as it was suggested. This was mainly due to the fact that Eileen's story seemed to change every time she told it, which... Honestly, it did, but I believe that there's a reason for that. You know, mental illness, PTSD, some, you know, patriarchal society where, you know, she's been shit on by men her entire life and nobody's ever believed her. Oh, no? Is that is that not it? Anyway. Uh, so where was I... Uh, yeah, so in her initial confession, she says nothing about the rape. Then she states that all seven men raped or attempted to rape her. Later, the story changes to only Richard Mallory raping her and that the, on- that the others only, quote, began to start to. And yet again, when talking to filmmaker Nick Broomfield, 
she says that she, in fact, did act in self-defense in all seven cases, but that she had changed her story because she just wanted to die at that point. She was tired of being on death row, and she just wanted to go. So she said that it was just Mallory that raped her and that she just killed all the other men just because. But then she was like, nah, it, it, it really was self-defense. Like, I just don't want to deal with this shit anymore. During the trial, the defense team also tried to make a big deal about the fact that Tyria Moore and three of the officers investigating the case had talked to the media to sell their stories. But considering that Eileen and her attorney had sold the movie rights to their stories just weeks after her arrest, I failed to see where they thought that was going to go. Like, yeah, seriously, kind of the pot calling the kettle black there. By January 27th, 1992, the jury had reached a verdict. Eileen Carol Warnos was found guilty on all counts after only two hours of deliberation. I guess they must have stopped for lunch or something first, because it doesn't usually take that long to fuck someone. Now, don't get me wrong. Did Eileen kill those men? Yes. Should there be consequences for that? Also yes. But should they also have considered the fact that she had been a victim of sexual assault for pretty much her entire life, and that men are trash, and she very well could have been acting in self-defense? Definitely yes. The penalty phase of the trial, to determine whether Eileen would be sentenced to death or not, began the very next day, on January 28th. During this phase of the legal process, it is up to the jury to decide if the case involves certain aggravating circumstances. Basically, any circumstances that make the crime especially heinous, or the person who committed the crimes more deserving of the death penalty. They are also supposed to decide if the aggravating circumstances that are present outweigh any mitigating circumstances. Both sides presented their cases. Psychologists were brought in to evaluate Eileen, and they even brought in distant relatives to testify about Eileen's childhood. I put testifying quotation marks because I feel like it was a setup. We'll get to that. Dr. Bernard, the state's expert psychologist, testified that Eileen suffered from not only borderline personality disorder, but from antisocial personality disorder. I mean, I think I just got the whole antisocial one, but that's just me. Dr. Bernard also talked about how he agreed that there was evidence of several, quote, non-statutory mitigating circumstances including Eileen's mental problems, history of alcoholism, and her genetic and environmental handicaps, which basically was her low IQ and her bad childhood. Speaking of Eileen's childhood, in an attempt to counteract the defense's stories of her traumatic past, the prosecution brought in, quote, witnesses from her childhood, her aunt, Lori Grody, and uncle, Barry Warnos who were also technically her stepbrother and stepsister. Because, remember, her grandparents adopted her, so that's a weird family tree. Uh, They both essentially testified that they never 
saw their father abuse Eileen. Huh, guess it never happened then, just because you didn't see it, right? Sure, whatever you say. The defense, when it was their turn, painted the dark portrait that was the tale of Eileen Warnos's childhood, including how she was abandoned by her mother, adopted by her alcoholic and abusive grandparents, and her history of sexual abuse. When she was in junior high, she began to suffer from hearing loss and vision problems, as well as having trouble in school, and it was discovered that her IQ was a rather low score of 81, which was only 11 points above what is considered mental retardation. So, given all this, they were kind of like, just don't give her the death sentence, like, you know, like, you know, we we agree she's, you know, guilty, she's going to prison, cool. But, like, look at the circumstances, come on. And they did not. At the end of the penalty phase, the jury decided on five aggravating circumstances, but only one, that's right, one mitigating factor. The aggravating circumstances were that Eileen had a previous felony conviction involving the use or threat of violence. The murder was committed during the commission of a robbery, was committed in order to avoid arrest, was heinous, atrocious, or cruel, and that the murder was cold, calculated, and premeditated. The one mitigating factor was that Eileen Warnos suffered from borderline personality disorder. Insert bullshit artist sound clip here. Bullshit artist. Bullshit artist. Bullshit, bullshit artist. Bullshit artist. Bullshit artist. You, sir, are a horseshit artist. I call bullshit on that. The jury and the judge all agreed that despite any mitigating factors, which the judge actually listed five of, that Eileen was aware of the difference between right and wrong, and on January 31st, she was sentenced to death by electric chair which was the method of execution at the time, but not by the time she got executed. Be weird if they still use the electric chair. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Shortly after being sentenced, Eileen was legally adopted by a woman named Arlene Prawl. Yeah, apparently you can adopt a whole-ass adult. Never knew that. Arlene claimed that she had a dream where Jesus told her to reach out and take care of Eileen. The truth of the matter is, though, that Miss Prawl was being paid for interviews and information about Eileen, including an interview she had with Nick Broomfield that she received $10,000 for. Some of that money, however, did actually go towards Eileen's new attorney, Stephen Glazer but this really wasn't doing her a huge favor as Glazer only took over her cases for the media exposure, according to her first attorney, public defender, Trisha Jenkins. One by one, Eileen would plead either guilty or no contest to each subsequent murder charge, especially after finding out that Arlene was actually using her the entire time they had been communicating. Yeah, she was basically devastated. She was like, Another person that she let, you know, she trusted, or she was supposed to be able to trust, betrayed her trust, and she was just like, I'm done. This is it. I'm out. Fuck this. 
like I said, you basically just got shit on by people and by your life for entire, you know, her entire life. But I mean, does that mean you can go around killing people? No, no. I was again, I was actually talking about this with my fiance earlier about how she was watching the uh, worst roommate ever on Netflix. And uh, the first episode is about Dorothea, Dorothea Puente, and that's here in Sacramento, you know, so eventually I will be doing an episode on her. Apparently there's a lot more to the story that I was not aware of, so I'm super excited to do this one now. So keep an eye out for that. But, you know, we are just talking about how with female serial killers... When they're talking about like their their pasts or their childhoods being messed up or whatever, a lot of the times they're referred to as being like pathological liars or, you know, like with Eileen Warnos, it was, oh, well, you know, she's a, a sonic liar, pathological liar. But really it was like maybe, you know, it's her mental disorders or maybe it's, you know, the past of abuse and sexual assault because... When a male serial killer has a bad childhood, everybody's like, oh yeah, that's why he's a serial killer. Because he had a bad childhood and life was mean to everybody was mean to him. But when it's a female serial killer, everybody's just like, no, she's a pathological liar if she said she was raped when she was a kid. It's just a double standard and it's fucked up. Anyway. After receiving her final death sentence in February of 1993, Eileen Warnos was incarcerated at the Florida Department of Corrections Broward Correctional Institution. That's a fucking mouthful. Uh, but uh, basically it's the death row for women. And then she was transferred to the Florida State Prison for her execution on October 9th, 2002. Ever the eloquent speaker... Her last words were, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back like Independence Day, with Jesus, June 6th. Like the movie, Big Mothership and all, I'll be back. But Eileen Warnos was never back. She, uh was executed on October 9th, 2002 by lethal injection. And uh, ever since then, like I said, in, in movies and, you know, in Hollywood and all these uh, different versions and stories, you know, she's portrayed as this ruthless serial killer, this 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 man eater, this monster, you know, and it, it's it's kind of fucked up how it's uh, it's basically the reverse of that situation. You know, it's that man had basically beat her down and beat her down and beat her down her entire life, and then she fought back. And, you know, granted, she fought back maybe, let's say, excessively. You know, you don't need to necessarily shoot the people nine times, six times, whatever, you know, in the head, back. You know, shoot them in the foot. Shoot them in the dick. Shoot them in the dick. Will you get in trouble? Maybe. But did you kill the guy? No, you just shot him in the dick. He tried to rape you. Shoot him in the dick. Seems like the crime should fit the... Or the punishment should fit the crime, right? Shoot him in the dick. 
not saying people should go around shooting people in the I'm just going to I'm just going to change the course of this here and just wrap this up now before it spirals any further out of control. So, that is the story of Eileen Warnos, the, you know, like I said, a man-made monster because uh I I believe that men or, or at least, you know, mankind in general had a lot to play in this one, you know, and uh I would recommend maybe checking out Monster with Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci. It's an entertaining movie, not entirely historically accurate, but then again, way more historically accurate than the Netflix movie Eileen Warnos and American Boogie Woman starring Peyton List. So be careful what you're, where you get your information from, basically. But yeah, that was basically the story of Eileen Warnos. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you have any feedback on the episode or any stories you'd like me to talk about, be sure to send them in to feedback at dabtodeath.com. If you would like to rate and review, it would be greatly appreciated and would definitely help me out. Um, you can always send me a message on any of the social medias at dab to death. Unless you're on Instagram, then it's at dab to death podcast. Tune in next week for the second installment of Cutthroat Kids. And until then, be careful out there. You never know when you may get dabbed to death. <laughs>